From Schwartz Media, I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. The right-wing anti-immigration politician who led the Brexit campaign in Britain is currently touring Australia. Nigel Farage has become increasingly irrelevant in British politics. So why is he commanding speaking fees and being given a hero's welcome by Sky News presenters and One Nation politicians? It could be a cynical, money-grabbing exercise, a play for political influence in Australia, or both. Today, journalist Kurt Johnson on the Nigel Farage tour, the figures behind it, and the global franchise of right-wing politics. It's Monday, October 3. Kurt, you recently went to go and see Nigel Farage, who is the the controversial former British politician, speak here in Australia. Why did you want to go to hear from him and, and what questions did you have about what it was that he might say? Well, I received an invite in my email. I like to keep tabs on the anti-establishment right, but also Farage is probably one of the most successful populist right-wing politicians uh, and characters in the world. It's worth noting that Trump, who rarely doles out any sort of praise for anyone but himself, said that his election win was Brexit plus, plus, plus. And of course, Farage is someone who, you know, was responsible for Brexit. And I was really interested in the local context of a Eurosceptic, a British Eurosceptic who had made their career denouncing the EU coming to Australia, where was the line between the politician, the the troll and the entertainer? And he's had his apex, he's had his high point and he's on the way down. And usually what happens when politicians are moving into their later years, the constraints begin to lift off and you begin to hear what they really think. So that's what I was enthusiastic in going to see him. Okay, and so as you say, Nigel Farage is probably best known for his agitating around Brexit. He's aligned, I suppose, with Donald Trump, who seems to be a fan. But could you tell me how it was that he arrived at at the high point of his career, which arguably now has passed, but tell me a bit about his journey to becoming a right-wing populist. You know, he was once a member of the British Conservative Party. He left the Conservative Party in, in 92. And then that was really when he became uh, more of an anti-establishment character. And he joined uh, UKIP party quite soon after it had formed and became this really prominent figure in it. And he was elected to uh, the uh, European Parliament as a MEP, but always on this anti-European Union ticket. He was always part of the Parliament, but against Britain being part of it. And I even... Even no deal is better for the United Kingdom than the current rotten deal that we've got. He's a climate change denier. He's against net zero. He's conservative. But his core platform has always involved being against immigration. What well, do you think it would? I mean, do you think it would be a good idea if you had a, a, you know, if you were running your own immigration policy, which of course Britain doesn't, 
because we're EU members, do you think it'd be a good idea to get a lot of people to come who didn't speak English? Do you think that, that, that would aid and abet integration in society? Well, the answer, of course, to that clearly is no. Do I think... Do and there's, there's sort of this mystique surrounding Farage in terms of his private life. So he's cheated death three times. And whenever he goes to one of these um, conservative functions... He'll go on stage and he'll get introduced as someone who's cheated death. So he, he had cancer. He got hit by a Volkswagen and he, he was in a plane crash uh, where a, a UKIP banner got caught up in uh, one of the rear propellers. Those who saw this plane smash into the field were amazed that anyone could walk away from it. But despite his injuries, UKIP's Nigel Farage was helped from the wreckage. And if before that crash uh, in politics, I was unafraid to take on the establishment, since that day, I've been fearless. And, you know, he has this, like, incredible energy that surrounds him. He has these things called PFLs, which is um, proper Farage lunches or proper effing lunches. There's this, yeah, this larger-than-life character that can be quite seductive because then there's the things that he's saying, you know, there's... The president of the European Commission, Jean-Claude Juncker, said that Farage was a retro-nationalist. Caroline Lucas of the Greens Party MP said his legacy is toxic and unforgivable. And really there's what he has to say that can be quite dangerous. So you have this dual personality of um, his political outlook, but also that of a celebrity, that of a political celebrity. And he was brought to Australia by an ex-publisher of Penthouse, Damien Costas, who is the head of this organisation, which is called Turning Point Australia in the Australian tour. So that's how he came to be here. Right. OK, so we have a former penthouse publisher bringing Farage on tour in Australia. It seems like a an odd association. Can you tell me a little bit more about Damien Costas and, and this company, Turning Point Australia? Yeah, so Costas is the head of Turning Point. On behalf of my entire administration, thank you to everyone at Turning Point USA's Teen Student Action Summit. What a group. That is really an Australian franchise of an American organisation that has the specific purpose of influencing young people, trying to make these conservative values hip again. The old conservative movement can't come to the phone right now. Why? Because it's dead. The the head of um, the American wing is a guy called Charlie Kirk, who's made misleading claims about COVID, big on those college campus culture wars, uh, railing against faculty and that sort of what he would see as woke overreach. In fact, some people, some doctors think that masks actually make you sicker and have you less likely to be able to get oxygen and more likely to infect yourself and less likely to be able to fight the virus and actually more likely to be able to die sooner. A lot of people believe that. I've met and this is Turning Point's first event. And um, when I was there, Costas spoke and he said that he had formed Turning Point by using Farage as a broker for Charlie Kirk to initiate that connection so that he could license the name in Australia. The night that was billed as an evening with Nigel Farage, it's $89 for general admissions ticket, fair enough, but then it goes all the way to uh, $1,250 for a private dinner and that sold out 
in Melbourne, in Sydney, and in Brisbane, these three places that, that Farage will be speaking. And depending on the amount of tickets, we're starting to begin to talk about quite a lot of money. So there's always the question, which is how much of this is about influence and, and politics, and how much of this is just about making money? Mm, a crucial question. But before we get to that, can you tell me what it was like to actually go to this event that Nigel Farage spoke at? What was it like as you walked into the venue and what was the atmosphere as everyone prepared to, to watch Farage speak? Right. So, you know, people arrive and they trickled in in the beginning and there's really three groups of people. So there were the retirees who were there for a night on the town who'd been hearing about Farage from um, Sky News, where he's interviewed quite frequently. There's the sort of the keyboard trolls who are like sitting there and their eyes are darting around because they're not used to being in big wide open spaces. And then there's the most interesting sort of uh, group were the, the people that are dressed up like Fox News pundits and they're wearing these designer clothes and walking around shaking hands and kissing cheeks. And everyone there was quite excited. I started speaking with people and they were interested to hear someone speak their mind finally. And then we went in. We'll be back after this. Need a reminder of what political leadership looks like? Australia's master of political satire, Jonathan Biggins, is back embodying the iconic Paul Keating, visionary, reformer and rabble-rouser. Due to overwhelming demand, one-man comedy The Gospel According to Paul is returning to the Opera House, on from the 4th to 23rd of June for its final term ever. Secure your tickets now at sydneyoperahouse.com for an unforgettable evening. For Sloane Crosley, writing about the loss of a friend may not have provided catharsis, but it did allow for the possibility of a better ending. Like you have this amazing meal that's this friendship, and then you have a really, 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 really bad dessert with shards of glass in it. And then like the book is like, you know, those little chunks of chocolate that come with the bill. I'm Michael Williams. Join me for this week's episode of Read This as I talk to Sloane Crosley about her latest Grief is for People. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Nigel Farage joins us right here in the Man Cave. Great man, welcome to Australia! Good to be here. Oh, my great... So, Kurt, what did Nigel Farage say to his Melbourne audience? First thing he said, he localised the introduction for Melbourne and he said, I must say I thought you'd be locked down forever. Um, And everyone thought that was very funny. Next topic was the Queen and the values that she represented. And then he moved on to something that, that, that's really a generic conservative playbook, which is talking about, you know, we actually face a battle for the very existence of Western civilization. You know, he's talking about these, these grand ideas of Western civilization being under threat from woke culture and outside from, from Beijing and China. And then, you know, dropping these conservative memes like, there's 70 genders and booing Greta Thunberg. And um, really the only thing he said that was really um, outside that playbook and outside just the most generic talking points of, you know, coming to a place like Melbourne was that he was talking about the Commonwealth and the idea that the Commonwealth with 56 countries that are in it can be a bulwark against China, which is not an idea I've heard before, but 
You know, all the rest I'd heard. Um, a- another interesting idea was how he took aim at Morrison. So there was a bit of localization of his content there. He talks about Morrison as this failed conservative and how they're worse than the leftists. He likened Morrison to Boris Johnson and said that um, they get elected as conservatives but rule as social democrats. So there's this this idea of deep, deep betrayal to their cause. And the big betrayals that Scott Morrison was cited as doing, and this this wasn't just from Farage, but there was a, a speaker called Ross Cameron who introduced Farage. He criticised Scott Morrison and Damien Costas did when he spoke. The idea of Scott Morrison as someone who betrayed because he signed up to Net Zero and really likening Scott Morrison to Boris Johnson as well, who also signed up to Net Zero. And this is this big betrayal of the uh, conservative cause, which got everyone very enthusiastic. Yeah, that's interesting that conservatives who aren't conservative enough are, are more of an enemy to someone like Nigel Farage than than figures on the left. So, Kurt, where did you get to on this question of whether this tour is a money-making exercise or an attempt to build political power? I mean, I, I suppose it could be both, but do you get the sense that Farage is enjoying much political sway on this tour? I got the sense that he was being wheeled out much more as a celebrity. Now, he is meeting, you know, Liberal senators, Alex Antic, you know, he's speaking with Pauline Hanson and Malcolm Roberts and uh, he'll be doing it in the, the Brisbane date that he has scheduled for Turning Point but also at CPAC. But I also think that there's not so much influence despite that and there's, there's reasons for that. First of all, that the landscape here in Australia is quite different from the UK or the US. We don't have a supranational entity that we can blame stuff on. You know, you can say the EU, but it's a bit of a stretch. But we don't have the equivalent of the EU to say that we're losing national sovereignty or we're paying these exorbitant membership fees to be a part of. And so the idea that his core message can be brought in or adopted by someone like One Nation, I just don't think there's much relevance here. Much more so is that he can just be wheeled out and there can be sort of a a prestige by association by which One Nation sharing the same platform can pick up on some of that uh, previous success that Farage has enjoyed. But I think that's it. But I suppose even if Farage is just being wheeled out as this kind of celebrity figure that very right-wing politicians see some advantage in being seen with, that is interesting because it does also show that there is this globalisation of the movement. I think it's quite interesting the fact that there is sort of a pre-Trump Farage who was against the EU you know, he was very involved in this UK idea of, of fisheries and we don't have our own fisheries and these really, really local issues, you know, stoking them definitely towards a populist right angle versus the post-Brexit or post-Trump Farage who is looking at this like global conservative thesis that involves China it involves connecting with the US, the UK, conservative groups all around the world and becoming part of this populist machine that 
creates these organizations and these local franchises of organizations like Turning Point or CPAC, which has its own chapter in Sydney, where he'll be speaking with Tony Abbott and a whole bunch of One Nation uh, members and, and Alan Jones. And the idea that there's a local variant of these international organizations that can come into a country, access a common pool of talent, cross-promote over social media is a brand. And it's really difficult, again, to see whether this is just a money-making venture or something potentially a little bit more sinister in terms of political influence. Kurt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for having me. For longtime editor Winnie Dunn, there were a few rules she followed when writing her debut novel. I really don't subscribe to writing for the sake of, you know, trauma dumping or getting your trauma out. That's what a therapist is for. Please, <laughs> please go see a therapist. We're very pro therapy. Yeah, yeah, if, no, if that's what you're using writing for. I'm Michael Williams, and on this week's very therapeutic episode of Read This, I chat with Winnie Dunn. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Also in the news today. Former Victorian Premier and outgoing Hawthorne President Jeff Kennett has criticised Indigenous players who used to play for the club for speaking to an ABC investigation into racism at the club. An external review commissioned by the club contained allegations that key staff demanded the separation of young First Nations players from their partners and families and pressured one couple to terminate the pregnancy. The club will not release the review publicly, but the author of it has described the trauma he uncovered as a nightmare. And after referendums widely considered to be fraudulent in Russian-held Ukraine, Vladimir Putin has held a ceremony claiming to formally annex the territories and make them part of Russia. The following day, Ukrainian troops seized the strategically important town of Lyman, one part of the country Putin had just declared would be part of Russia, quote, forever. I'm Ruby Jones. This is 7am. See you tomorrow.